Welcome back to the Institute of World Mission podcast. I'm your host, Alex Ott, and this is episode 105. One of the conversations that is alive and well in the Adventist mission community happens around mission, vision, and strategy. We, as members of the missions community, organize our mission activities. We choose our mission priorities. We're driven by a certain vision. This is why we do things we do. There's definitely better and worse ways of going about cross-cultural mission. This can be true on a personal level, on a level of a nation or a region, or even on a global level. What we want to see is that every missionary, every missional member, every pastor and administrator who has a responsibility to make decisions about cross-cultural mission, basically all of us, that we would be steeped well into this conversation. We want to strive towards the best ways the Lord would have us to use to do cross-cultural mission. To accomplish that, we invited Gary Cross, Director of General Conference Office of Adventist Mission, who also happens to be a cross-cultural and global leader in the Adventist Church. He is also a missionary, a missionary trainer, and a mission scholar. We invited Gary to have this particular conversation, the conversation related to mission strategy and vision. Today, Gary interviews Rick McEdward. Rick serves as president of Middle East and North Africa Union. He has a rich intercultural service background, having lived in multiple countries in Asia, also Middle East and North America. Together, Rick and Gary touch on several key aspects of a comprehensive mission framework. With that, Let's transition to the interview. Welcome to the Institute of World Mission Weekly Podcast, a show for Adventist mission enthusiasts striving to live, serve, and witness cross-culturally. Visit us at iwm.adventist.org slash podcast to view this podcast's show notes, links, and previous episodes. Institute of World Mission is your partner in the mission field. Hi, Rick. It's good to be able to talk to you again from a long distance, but on a subject that both of us are very, very committed to and interested in. Great to be with you, Gary. Thanks. To get the ball rolling, Rick, I want to read a statement that Michael Baer wrote some years ago, and he said, I once asked an an Indonesian Christian why the country had become so predominantly Muslim. She said that when the Western Christians came, they built missionary compounds and missionary churches and expected the Indonesian people to come to them. The Muslims, on the other hand, came as traders, farmers, merchants and business people and simply lived among the natives. Today, Indonesia is the world's most populous Muslim nation. I wonder how different it could have been. When you hear a statement like that, how do you respond, Rick? You know, that's just an incredible and impacting statement. You know, you and I have traveled in Indonesia together and we see it all around us. But that statement just puts a pin on the on the map that says where did we go wrong relying on maybe professionals maybe not taking seriously the incarnation of jesus to um, who came into this world as an everyday citizen uh, learned grew up and uh, was one among the people and man what uh, 
what a difference it is. And I don't know how it strikes you, Gary, but for me, it just feels like sometimes we sit in the back of an auditorium looking at somebody speaking up in front of an audience and how easy it is to disagree with them, to not identify, and how easy it would be not to really take a message as seriously. I say praise God that many have become uh, faithful Seventh-day Adventists through the years, but what would it be like if every person were, every Adventist were to take the gospel into their workplace and become, as Paul the Apostle, a tent maker for the kingdom, uh, just making it come alive through their day, daily life. Now, that's total member involvement right there. Exactly. And, you know, when I look at our mission strategy historically, I think often we've thought in terms of how can we attract people to come to our events to listen to what we have to say. And so it's very much focused on, you know, we're going to have this seminar, we're going to have this uh, Bible study, we're going to have this meeting and we'll send out our leaflets or our advertisements and want to ask people to come to us on our terms. This statement encourages us to think differently. Absolutely. You know, um, the whole essence of the missionary mandate, as we see in the story of Abraham, was go. And we see it in the New Testament too, go. So if we are going to go, then we have to um, think of it being a little bit more, um, instead of having something to send out leaflets, inviting is good. And I don't, I don't want to criticize, I'm not here to criticize various methods, because God uses everything. But there is definitely a, a missional mandate that says we ourselves have to cross barriers so that we go to other people. Yeah. So it's not either or, it's both. Right. That's right. So let me ask you another question, Rick. When when I look at you, I see you, you know, on one level we're we're friends, uh, we've been work colleagues. Uh, On one level, you're Dr. McEdward because you did some study for your um, DMN. You, on another level, you are Pastor McEdward because you're a pastor. Then you are Rick, Rick, who sits in the pew, who's, who's a church member. When you look at those various levels, shall we say, of who you are, do you think about mission strategy differently? When you've got the administrator's hat on, do you think it of about it differently than you do when you think of your academic background or when you think about, well, I'm, a, I'm just a church member. How do you look at mission strategy according to those different hats? That's a that's an interesting question, Gary. And I guess, I guess the real important question is for every church member in the pew is how do we take into our lives the mission of Christ? Mm. Um, I, I don't, I don't look at myself ordinarily as an administrator or an academic or anything like that. I look at myself as a common Christian that's been given a specific role in the task. And we are all, we all share in that. Um, and, and the task that Christ gave us isn't for pastors. It includes them. It isn't for administrators or professionals or academics. The task is for every Christian come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That small group of fishermen were anything but an academic or a pastor at that time. So Jesus actually gives the gospel commission 
I, I think most readily, most accessible to the everyday person who has decided to follow Jesus. We've forgotten that. Somehow we have um, said we can go to church, we can pay our tithe, and, and maybe we'll leave the disciple-making or the evangelizing to others. And I think that that's a mistake, that we belong to a priesthood of all believers. Mm, thank you for that, Rick. Now, you refer to the task that Jesus has given to us. Now, it's interesting that when we look at it in the Bible, there's no record of Jesus setting out kind of like a, a statement of this is the strategy that you will use when you go to make disciples. There's not a whole lot of lot of detail there. There's no academic paper on 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 the mission strategy as he sees it, but rather it seems to me that what he gives us are stories about mission and then the example of his life. Uh, so when we look at the stories he told, when we look at the example of his life, how would you describe Christ's mission strategy? You know, um, Jesus did a whole lot of healing, casting out of demons, teaching. He used parables and uh, different uh, avenues of communication that the people would understand. But I think his most important strategy is in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where it says, make disciples. You know, we, we, kinda, we kind of know that verse by heart, but the only command in that verse is to go and make disciples. And so I think all mission strategies are predicated upon making disciples who are free from the inner guilt, the inner torment, the uh, all of the other issues of life, those the shame and the the uh, concerns and the burdens, and Jesus is making us free and wants to give us joy. And by giving us joy, don't we want to share it? So the greatest mission strategy, we want to see the Holy Spirit lead, but mission strategy is basically predicated on making disciples along with. The congregations that go with those, a community of belief. The other side, understanding the people that you're among. Who is it that we work with? You know, sometimes we think a mission strategy is kind of a one size fits all. And I think that, uh, like other things, that that's a that's a mistake. We can make blanket strategies as long as they're um, contextualized, they're appropriated locally. Okay, so I'm going to come back to the Matthew 28, but I want to build on what you just said there about different contexts. So I know that you have served for many years in Asia. You have pastored and planted churches here in North America, where I am at the moment, and also you're serving currently in the Middle East, and you're you're obviously in Beirut, Lebanon at the moment. So what lessons have you learned in these different contexts for mission strategy? Now, you say that we need to contextualized. So is the strategy different in Asia than it is from New York City or it is from Beirut, Lebanon? Do we, you know, do we just, do we just pre preach the gospel and let the Holy Spirit care for the rest? You know, I uh, I grew up in Seattle, one of the most unsured cities in America. Uh, we spent time in Sri Lanka, which was largely Buddhist and Hindu. Uh, we lived in the Philippines, which was Catholic. And here, uh, where in the Middle East, North Africa, it's, it's largely Muslim ba background. So, yes, the mission task is the same but different. Um, definitely, there are personal and even corporate things that we could do that may look similar. But I think you have to understand the people. 
you have to understand where a Buddhist is coming from in order to communicate in a way that he can make a, an educated response to. I don't think God ever called us uh, to mission to just communicate something over and over again. He called us to communicate in, in a way that somebody's going to understand it. And um, having that is really significant if we can communicate in a way that can be understood. Now, what about fellow church members who would say, look, in doing that, you're really compromising the message. You know, the message is the message. Uh, so aren't you watering it down for different people groups? You know, I, I don't, I don't uh, at all think that we should take away anything from the message. It should be Christ-centered, should be focused on the full message. But I don't think we are doing a service to others, if the message we're sending has so much static in it that it cannot be understood. And that message should give the greatest part to who God is, to his love, his power, his truth, his grace. And if we, if people, if people in looking forward to the second coming don't take in those pieces and a Christ-centered message, then basically what we've done is we've bypassed communication in order to make it easy or even redundant, uh, cookie cutter like. Mm. So do we see any examples, say, in the New Testament of this actually being done? Well, I, I, I uh, you know, the one right here in Lebanon was the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, you know, there are stories like this all through the New Testament. In fact, you could just go story to story in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, one of my favorite sections of the New Testament. Monty. And you go section after, or just story after story, and you think, man, Jesus met this person where they were, and he knew it, and he touched them. He, he taught this. He cast out this demon. He did this and this. And each one of those stories represents a powerful um, moment where in a very intimate way, Jesus met somebody where they were. And when he met them where they were, he uncovered the scarred heart. He touched them and he released them from everything that they'd been through. Mm, beautiful. And we see people such as the Apostle Paul following Jesus' example. So when we see him talking to the, his fellow Jewish people, he talked in a very different way than when he was talking with the pagans. Just totally, to, not, a, not a different message at the core, but a different way of expressing it. Actually, um, Paul in his, uh, in his message in, in Athens versus his other messages, say in Jerusalem, expresses himself in such a different way that he was attempting, like all witness, to do the impossible right. by making himself somehow available within the language of the people. Yeah. Um, you, you think of what Jesus did with Zacchaeus. Here was Zacchaeus trying his best to get Jesus a look at Jesus, and Jesus could see beyond the facade and reached in and spoke to him the words that changed his life. Now, the, the cool part about that is when Zacchaeus' life was changed, it didn't just say, yes, I want to be a member. He said, I'm going to reconcile my past because of Christ's love in my life. And that shows that uh, believing is not just a mental 
exercise that believing isn't all of life exercise. Excellent. I want to circle back to Matthew 28 and what we call the Gospel Commission. And there's a post-colonialist theologian who actually comes from Sri Lanka, where you worked for many years, R.S. Sagaritharaj. And he talks about the fact that really Christians weren't taking Matthew 28 as something as applied to them until probably the 18th or 19th century with, you know, with people such as William Carey. And up until that stage, it was almost like dismissed that was something for the apostles. And even the reformers, John Calvin and others, didn't really see that we had been given a mandate to go to all peoples. And, and when you look at the history of the Adventist church, we had a, a similar sort of thing where we, in the early days, we thought that the Gospel Commission was basically saying to reach from the East Coast of America to the West Coast of America. That was our, that was our mission field. And so what I'm, the question I'm, I'm building to is, how do we get to that stage of where we're focusing more on maintenance than we are on mission? How do we fall into that trap and what can we do about it? You know, um, studies have shown that about 95% of all financial resources from the Christian Church of North America are spent on maintaining itself, buildings and, and uh, salaries and properties and upkeep and all of this. And it just seems like it's so easy to be drawn in. And I think the only spiritual answer is to day by day read the Bible. And I would even say, especially the Gospels, and simply to continue to ask myself the question, am I living in obedience to this? Whether I'm a church member or a, a cross-cultural worker, am I living in obedience to this? Am I... Am I willing to say that um, my mission, which is Christ's mission, is something more than, um, than something that the church does, that it becomes my mission? And, but I guess there's so many answers to this question, and one of them is I think that we've become very satisfied um, with how the, the church does its outreach and so we don't personally wrestle with it. And when we personally wrestle with the reality of the world and also with the day-by-day -day living out the gospel, I think that the, the gospel mandate comes more alive for us. Thank you, Rick. Yeah. So when we look at the Great Commission, um, it was neglected for quite a while. We didn't, see, we didn't see it as applying to ourselves as Christians until relatively uh, recently, and but now we kind of almost take it for granted and we don't see how revolutionary it was. So I'm thinking of the wider context of the Roman occupation at the time and the peace of Rome and how it was the emperor cult and how Rome was actually seen as having a di divine commission to extend its power to all peoples across the world. And then Jesus comes along and says, uh-uh, the real commission is to spread my good news to all people. And and I just love that, that, that this small group of 11 disciples are given this mandate, which is not about power and might like Rome, but it's the good news of love and compassion and grace. Amen. 
Mm. Um, but sometimes, sometimes we've diminished that, Rick, too, and we've, we've looked at it mainly as go and baptise people. Give us a proper understanding of what that passage means. Um, you know, we there's four verbs, go, baptise, teach, and make disciples, but only make disciples as a command. The other ones are as you're going, as you're living, as you're doing your life, as you're teaching, as you're baptizing, you must make disciples. And so I think that the going part and the baptizing part are assumed as part of our our walk, our daily walk, and, it, and that every person should be part of it. But I want to pull out an illustration. You talked about the, the Roman era. And one of the interesting stories, a uh, couple hundred years after the apostles, uh, when the church was in heavy persecution, looked at a very um, segmented part of the population, looked down upon, persecuted, somebody that was not, the church was not looked favorably upon by society. It was small, but during a, a large epidemic, a, a pandemic that swept through and people were dying, what did the church do? It said, we will treat the sick. We will bury the dead when nobody else would do it. So the church at risk to itself jumped in and cared for the sick and the dying. And it created such a, a positive uh, sympathy for the church that others said, if this is what these people will do, I want to join them. And I think that that is a significant moment and it's very similar to what we should be doing all around us in communities, whether it's during a pandemic or whether it's during other moments in a community when there's a need. And I think that uh, Jesus, first of all, ministered to people. He didn't hold himself separate. He got his hands dirty and he set the example for us to do that. And as we do that, as we show God's love uh, contagiously, that uh, his joy will take over and it will be uh, much more part of those who choose to follow him. Mm, exactly. Yes, it's fascinating to look at some of that early history and how basically when the plague hit the cities, the first people to leave for the safety of the countryside were the pagan priests and it were the Christians who remained inside there to tend for the sick. And as you okay. say, that made an impact. And it was Christian, it was, it was Jesus, of course, who brought the dignity of people, uh, human freedom, the, that we should treat people with respect. Um, you know, when we look at today, a lot of the social justice movements that are going on, and even today, as we see the, 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 the Me Too movement, which is looking at how we, we you know, sexual aggression against people. Well, that was accepted back in Roman times. That was the role of, I mean, you had every right to exploit people if you were a, a Roman um, aristocrat. There was no problem with that. But it was Jesus who came and brought a, a different perspective to things. And so thank you for that reminder, because as we look at our mission strategy, we do need to make plans. We do need to to pray about where we place resources, where we put our emphases, all that sort of thing. But the bottom line is what you've reminded us of, that it's all about showing the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Uh, that's that's the essence of who we are. And uh, yeah, it's, it's the most needed part of our church today is for every member to take that up. You know, Rick, when the 
global mission initiative began for the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1990, it started us thinking more strongly about people groups rather than just geography. So prior to that, we tended to think about an unentered country uh, rather than an unentered people group. So in your work, in your mission work, how important is it in, in our strategy to think about people groups rather than just geography? Well, you know, we have a, a people group here in MENA that's 40 million population. It straddles four countries, and there has never been an Adventist church in that people group until this year. Well, uh, when I, I mean, we, we have now the first ever church planter, global mission pioneer. And he, uh, during the pandemic, his work was basically shut down. So he went on Zoom and now he's got people meeting in four different countries uh, that all belong to his people group. And when I look at that, I, I say, this is remarkable that we haven't seen that within a country, there can be um, ethno-linguistic people groups that are not um, central to the majority of the people. Uh, so they may be smaller or even the largest, but our church tends to go on the easy path instead of the difficult one. We have another one in another country where an opening just came up and we're, we're uh, writing a proposal for sending a, a church planter to a new area where there's 1.2 million people that we've never had a Seventh-day Adventist. And the people group thinking is basically identified as where an ethno-linguistic people group exists that does not have the ability to witness or reproduce its own um, dynamic witness within its people. So we try to support from the outside with those things. Terrific, Rick. You've finished us off there on a very nice tangible example of mission strategy on the ground because we still face tremendous challenges in front of us. Um, but Matthew 28 reminds us that we can go because we are going in the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. So thanks, Rick, for sharing with us today. And may God continue to bless you and your team and the people there in the Middle East, North Africa Union, where you're working. Thank you so much, Gary. It's great to see you. Bye. Now that you've listened to the interview, what critical aspects of a mission, vision, and strategy are your personal takeaways? Simply jump to the webpage where we publish this episode, the link you can find in the show notes, and once there, share your answer, your personal answer to this question in the comments. So the question again, what critical aspects of a mission, vision, and strategy are your personal takeaways? from this interview. You can also um, just simply write me at otta at gc.adventist.org. Besides the answer to this question, we welcome your suggestions, questions, or any kind of feedback. To conclude, don't forget to check out the upcoming webinars on the IWM website. Again, the link is in the show notes. You have a chance to register in advance to the kind of training that you feel you have most interest in. We at IWM are looking forward to seeing you there in person. For now, I say my name is Alex Ott and I am looking forward to seeing you next week.